To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Good thing we got a debt deal. That Gosh, that seems like so long ago, Kaylee, when we were talking about the debt ceiling. Then, of course, there was the revolt by conservative Republicans who said, well, this doesn't cut spending the way we want it. Mm-hmm. And the whole debt picture really hasn't changed all that much here, has it? As I read this forecast, this is something else from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And we typically talk about appropriations, you know, with Maya and uh, with Mark, who's going to join us just a second. Uh, Super smart. They wear the green visors. (laughs) Check out the check out these headlines. This is I'm, I'm reading here. Analysis of CBO's June 2023 long term budget outlook. Debt will grow rapidly as share of the economy. Deficits will explode. Explode. Spending will continuously outpace revenue. The budget outlook is better than last year's, but still troubling. <laughs> yes. Mark Goldwine, it's great to see you in studio. This is uh, quite a bit to look forward to here. Well, I'm glad to be here, and I hope not to depress you too much. But it's a fact <laughs> that debt limit deal did not change the long-term trajectory for our debt at all. Not, not too much. I mean, look, it was actually, I think, an important step in the right direction. Uh, we were looking at the budget, and we think you need about $8 trillion over a decade mm-hmm. just to stop the debt from growing faster than the economy. The budget deal gave us $1 to $2 trillion. Wow. So it's a start, but we have a lot more work to do. Yeah. I feel like that might, fa- might fall under the category of baby steps. <laughs> yes, sure. We'll go with that. Baby well, step. <laughs> you have to understand that the criteria before then was only walking backwards. So the fact mm. that we're walking forwards wow. is a big step. What a thought. Okay. So looking at the glass half full here, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But when we're talk- Joe was talking about the headlines, when you say spending is going to continually outpace revenue, talking about how spending growth, which is driven by rising retirement, health care, net interest costs, that's where it all comes from. And these are the things that no one wants to that's touch. So it just becomes a question mark of how we get out of this little predicament. Yeah, look, the, the three biggest government programs are Social Security, Medicare, and Defense. The three fastest growing ones are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Guess what the four programs are that every politician says they won't touch? <laughs> Off the table. And then veterans on top of that, right? We, we did an analysis. If you took Social Security, Medicare, and veterans off the table, you'd have to cut everything else like 80% to balance the budget. It's just not realistic. And so we got to be grownups here. we got to admit that Social Security is going to need some adjustments if we want to avoid insolvency, which is only 10 years away, by the way. Medicare, there's plenty of policies that actually both parties support, but they're too busy beating each other over their head to move forward and actually pass them. Because everybody's running for re-election perpetually in Washington. So uh, in the scenario that you just outlined, you take Social Security off the table, Medicare's off the table, veterans off the table. We kind of took the Pentagon off the table, too. Now you've got to go into an appropriations process to make conservative Republicans think that there are steep budget cuts here and there's very little to work with 
which is why everyone's forecasting already a government shutdown. Do you see it that way? I, I think that's right. So the budget deal on paper cut non-defense discretionary 5 or 6% yeah. from this year. In reality, they agreed to all these side agreements that made it more like a freeze. Um, what the Freedom Caucus folks are actually asking for is just more side agreements. Mm. They're not changing the underlying levels. They're trying to find what's called rescissions, one-time mm. spending cuts that mostly aren't real in order to make the numbers look deeper without actually getting at the heart of the problem. And by the way, the heart of the problem isn't the discretionary budget. Mm. Again, it's mm-hmm. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, defense. That doesn't mean we shouldn't cut spending and raise revenue wherever you know spending is wasteful or tax breaks aren't doing any good. But if we don't tackle the health care and retirement programs, nothing else is going to matter in the long run. Well, when we talk about tackling those those mandatory sides of the ledger, it's because people don't want to be seen cutting those benefits. But as you talk about like rescissions and some of the little fancy math you can mm-hmm. do that aren't necessarily just a blanket, we're going to cut by X percent. Is that a potential way out of this, just finding specific areas which in those programs where you could maybe trim I think we can trim to take some more baby steps. Okay. But the, the fact of the matter is, is we have an $8 trillion problem. There's not $8 trillion of rescissions out there. So we should try to trim. And by the way, we should try to trim in Medicare. There are places that we've identified that we're just overpaying a certain provider um, where, you know, there's an incentive that doesn't make sense. So we can do trimming even in these big programs. But at the end of the day, trimming isn't going to get us there. We need a full haircut. We need a haircut. Your haircut, uh, maybe you need more than that. I, you know, we talk about the balance sheet here. I know the government is not a company, and I'll take some. I'll get nice tweets for asking you this, but we're, how do we not need to talk about the revenue side as well? If we're actually going to be grownups, to your point about eliminating this problem, and there are we're, we're taking two thirds of the budget off the table, uh, do we need to raise a little money? We're going to need more revenue, no question, right? So. Both parties have essentially said they won't touch Social Security, they won't touch Medicare. Yeah. Both parties have also essentially said they won't raise taxes on 98% of Americans. So we're stuck. Right? The difference between the Democrats and Republicans are Republicans don't want to raise taxes on anybody, yeah, right. and Democrats only don't want to raise taxes on 98% of people. That is not sustainable. <laughs> we are going to need more revenue. And the truth is, for to my Republican friends, um, there are so many tax breaks in the code that are basically just spending. And if you want to cut spending, you should also look at cutting spending in the tax code. Um, why do we subsidize mortgage interest? Um, why do we subsidize state and local taxes? Why do we subsidize health care insurance so heavily in the tax code? Uh, we need to look at these the same way we would look at Medicare, the same way we would look at food stamps. But what we consistently hear from the Republican side, and d- during the course of the debt ceiling conversations, we were asking pretty much every Republican lawmaker we had on this show and on Balance of Power this question of why not look at the revenue side of the equation. And they say, well, we're already bringing in record revenue. We're bringing in more revenue than we ever have before. So what's the flaw in that argument when technically there are more dollars coming into that side of the balance sheet? It's just that, you know, it's also swelling on the other yeah. side. So, so it's, it's really a data statistic. In 2022, we did have near record revenue as a share of the economy. Mm-hmm. That was for two reasons, massive inflation. And mm-hmm. the tax code's an index to inflation, but it's on a lag. So we brought in the money first, and then it got indexed the next year and a one-time infusion of capital gains. If you look over the last 12 months, revenue has actually already fallen back down to about its historic average. So that record revenue is behind us, way behind us. Um, In fact, revenue this year is probably going to be exactly what the Congressional Budget Office thought it would be right after we passed the 2017 tax cuts, Hmm. like within $2 billion if you adjust for inflation. So 
the record revenue is gone. If if there compromises, let's get back to 20, 2022 levels of revenue and keep it there, I'm all game. But that's going to require actually raising a lot more than what we're doing now. Maybe then wouldn't need to cut $130 billion to keep the government open, because that's basically what we're looking at here from the demands from the Freedom Caucus. And, and look, in the appropriations process, I, I, there's definitely going to be some chaos um, here before the storm. But there's talk of passing a continuing resolution in okay. advance to prevent a shutdown. That would result in another 1% cut. We can we can bear a 1% cut. Um, it's that the was part talks. of the, the debt agreement, right? Part, that 1% across the board. Part of the agreement was if you don't get your appropriations done, yeah. there's an additional 1% cut as a penalty. It's like mini sequester. Mini sequester. <laughs> Frankly, that wouldn't be the end of the world. You know, anybody can anybody can figure out how to cut 1%. Talk to any company. Talk to any family. You can always find 1%. That wouldn't be the end of the world. It's not the best way to budget because we ought to actually pass each appropriation bill. Mm-hmm. But if that's where we land, I, th- I think we'll be okay. Just finally, because we haven't touched on it as much, but this idea of the net interest payments that the government actually has to pay because of its very high debt load, especially when we're talking about the Fed that may hike interest rates. Once again, we're just in a much higher rate environment. How should we be thinking about that? Because there's no guarantee that that's going to be a story that changes anytime soon. Yeah. In fact, I mean, if I've been looking at bond yields a little bit today. I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the day, Every yields above 4%. Mm. We have a lot of them that are already above 5%. We have very high interest rates now compared to where they've been the last, uh, the last couple of decades, the last decade. And that's feeding into the budget. Um, interest is the fastest single growing government program. This year, the government will spend more on interest than everything it spends on children at the federal level. <laughs> by 2029, interest is going to breach the defense budget. And by 2050 or so, interest is on course to be the single largest government program. Larger than Social Security, larger than Medicare, larger than defense. Let that sink in. Yeah. Uh, Come back and see us when everyone gets back to town and we start arguing over this stuff all over again because we we count (laughs) on your insights, Mark. Great to see you in studio. Thanks, Mark. Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President, Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget with us here on Bloomberg Sound. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Should be quite a moment when Sweden's prime minister comes face to face with Turkish President Erdogan on Monday. A last-ditch effort to convince Turkey to actually allow Sweden to join NATO. This is something 
that has been in the mix for months now, promoted by the Biden administration and supported by NATO, including its head, Jens Stoltenberg. Today, we reaffirmed that Sweden's membership is within reach and that ratification of Sweden's membership does not mean the end of cooperation with Turkey. Far from it, as Finland's continuing engagement here today shows. Let's reassemble the panel. We're going to cover a couple of topics here with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Your thoughts here, Rick, it, it didn't seem like it was that revolutionary when President Biden uh, put forth the idea of Finland and Sweden joining. How important is it, though, for this to happen? Well, I think that it sends a critical message to Vladimir Putin that the uh, initiative that he tried to invade uh, Ukraine uh, to split up NATO actually had the result uh, reversed and it actually increased NATO. So I think that narrative is an incredibly powerful narrative for Europe, Eastern Europe, and, and, and frankly, the message to China about solidarity. And I think the, the fact that Turkey and to some degree Hungary you know, have been sort of the uh, fly in the ointment on getting yes, this right. this band together uh, is is got rep, uh, repercussions. I mean, uh, Turkey wants F-16s mm-hmm. uh, and we want them to be dependent upon our war machine, not uh, Russia's. And and so something like this would probably have to be worked out in order for them to do the right thing and allow uh, Sweden in. Jeannie, are the jets or the F-16s enough to make this happen? They well might be. And, and we saw in Punchbowl News today that you had Mitch McConnell saying he agreed with Menendez right. that, you know, he thinks that we should hold up the sale of those F-16s. Now, of course, the Biden administration says, you know, <laughs> the two are not connected, but it seems that there may be more behind the scenes than they are willing to say at this point. Mm-hmm. And this has been a top priority for the Biden administration ever since the start of the Ukraine war, that they wanted to get Sweden into NATO. And so they see it as a critical way to show a unified Western European NATO front versus Russia. And Turkey objecting is something that I think they feel like they can deal with in part by holding these F-16s over their head. Yeah. Well, as the administration's waiting for a call on Sweden here, uh, it is apparently not going to be calling Facebook for help. As you might have heard here, the administration uh, is going to appeal a court ruling that that cuts down on the ability, limits the ability of federal officials to interact with social media companies, knowing uh, that there's been like a daily sync meeting, I think, a mind meld with the administration and folks at Facebook. They've made phone calls. We know that from the Twitter files. I'm not going to get into that whole thing. But the idea of somebody at the White House, Rick, picking up the phone and calling Twitter or Facebook about misinformation uh, is going to become a lot more difficult now. This is something that Corinne Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, spoke about at the White House briefing. Here she is. We are going to continue to promote responsible actions to protect uh, public health, safety, and uh, security when confronted by challenges like a deadly pandemic and foreign attacks on our elections. So we're going to continue uh, to be to to do that in a to promote that in a responsible way. Of course, a lot of this goes back to COVID and, and misinformation around vaccines. Rick, should the White House be in the business? Should it be allowed to be picking up the phone and calling? social media companies and is that different than news agencies when it sees something it thinks is wrong yeah i mean it's a really tricky question because you can certainly carve out things like uh misinformation on on vaccines and say oh absolutely it's in the public health interest and that's a Mm -hmm. you know uniquely federal government responsibility 
The problem is it never ends there, right? I mean, you know, the, the most practical thing is to say, yeah, that's the only instance that we, you know, should have that kind of dialogue because it will likely be turned into interference on other issues at some point down the road because we know government really doesn't know how to restrict itself. And so I think it's a really cautionary tale, and it goes right back to some of the debates we've had on this show around Capitol Hill doing something about regulating these yep. entities uh, and until something is done on Section 230 or one of the other um, um, editorial uh, regulations that could govern the social media groups, then you're going to run into these kinds of problems. That's right, Jeannie. Brick just put his finger on it, and that was my question for you. Does this not come back to Section 230 and the need for reform? It can, but I also think this is slightly different. You know, this judge's decision is really interesting. It's 155 pages. And, you know, there is a way, as you go back to the early 1990s, the Supreme Court has long held that the government cannot discriminate against people given a point of view. It's called viewpoint discrimination. It's unconstitutional unless the government can show it has a compelling interest for doing so, and it does so in the least restrictive means. So there is a way in which they can do this, but calling up social media companies willy-nilly, telling them to strip things or not put them on a server or not forward them to people's friends on Facebook and Meta and elsewhere is not the least restrictive means. So I'm not sure this requires a Section 230, although I'm not opposed to that. I think there is a means. It is built into a 1991 Supreme Court decision. The judge makes that case. The government has to show a compelling reason and the least restrictive means. Anybody who believes in free speech Hmm. should believe that that is the right way to proceed. Is it different than a news organization, Jeannie? If they called Bloomberg and said, hey, I didn't like the way you said that, Joe. This we we got to take another swing at it. Well, you know, it is different. Um, obviously, these are social media companies. So this is, you know, one person going on speaking to as many sure. people as they can hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have a right, you know, as people to call it Bloomberg or to call up CBS or anybody else and tell them what to put out there. And the government should not have a right to do that either, unless, again, they can show they have a compelling reason. That's usually to Rick's point health, safety, welfare, national security, and they do it in the least restrictive means. Because one thing in a democracy you don't want to do is you do not want to throw cold water on a variety of speech. Let it get out there. Let people talk unless there's a real interest in restricting it. And I think those reasons have got, we've got to keep up with that regardless of social media or traditional media. We've got an update on the cocaine. I haven't had a chance to talk to you guys about this, but And I wasn't planning to, by the way, but this just cleared uh, news from the White House. NBC News reporting, quote, multiple officials involved in the White House cocaine inquiry. Now say the bag of powder was found in a cubby near the White House's West Executive Entrance. You guys know where that is. Not the formal West Wing lobby, as was previously reported. So we are eliminating uh, some folks from the pool here. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, again, the press secretary, spoke to... Uh, the effort to get to the bottom of this, but specifically about the location, at least where we thought it was. Uh, where uh, where this was discovered uh, is a heavily traveled area where many White House, uh, West Wing, I should be even more specific, uh, West Wing visitors uh, come through uh, this particular area. I just don't have uh, anything more to share. It is so under investigation. It was not in the lobby, Rick. It was the West Executive Entrance, and uh, you need to have business to go through that door, don't you? 
Yeah, this is the staff door. This is where yeah. if you're going back and forth from the old executive office building to the West Wing, mm-hmm. this is the door you go in and out of. And this is the door. And I've done this a million times when I was in the White House where you bring in your guests uh, right. to uh, give them the, quote, private backstage tour of the yes, White House. Right. And, uh, and, they and say when the so president small. is gone, the, the, you're allowed to do that. And so over the weekend when the president was in Camp David, you know, staff were bringing people through there and giving them their own personal tour. Uh, it is not a heavily traveled place. It's only traveled by, you know, people who have access to the West Wing. Right. And it's, you don't count those in a thousand. So I don't exactly know what uh, the press secretary was trying to, to convey that way. Well, I, you know, maybe she learned uh, that, you know, this was not where they thought initially. It was thought to be the West Wing lobby. It could be anybody there, Jeannie. Now it's sounding like they might actually be able to figure out who, who this was. Yeah, you think they would be able to at the White House? I have to say, words I never thought I'd hear you say, Joe. We've got an update on that cocaine. That just has struck with me, stuck with me, rather. Um, Thank you for noting. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, they say heavily trafficked. I agree with Rick. If it is heavily trafficked, that's a bit of a problem. We all know it's not heavily trafficked. (laughs) And let's hope that there are cameras there and they're able to get to the bottom of this because, as far as I know, not just anybody can waltz in and out of that area, and hopefully they're not able to. Otherwise, we have an even bigger security problem at the White House than well, any of us. It's also a great point. As Rick said it, though, I mean, you've got to be you've got to uh, have business there. You have to have a reason to go there. And if you're a guest of a White House official who's bringing you in there, these are pretty important people in the Secret Service knows who they are. That's another thing people don't assume with the White House. You know, if you work there, you're like on a first name basis with the Secret Service. You see them every day. But I digress. We'll let you know when we learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden back on the road today. South Carolina touting his economic accomplishments that most Americans, at least according to polls, do not think very highly of. Leading many of us to wonder, does he stick with the same message or is it time to change the approach? With us to discuss this. Among other big ideas is Carly Fiorina, the former CEO of Hewlett Packard, founder and chair of Carly Fiorina Enterprises and Unlocking Potential. Of course, former Republican presidential candidate, along with Bloomberg's David Weston, the host of Wall Street Week. Back for our recurring conversation here about leadership. Welcome to both of you. It's one that we look forward to always. And David, the idea of doing the same thing over and over again without getting results is said to be the definition of insanity we can argue about that or not but carly's new column is titled driving change which is the scary part of leadership isn't it i, I that's certainly my experience which is not <laughs> the same as carly's but i certainly have been scared when i've driving. but i think your your analogy is apt right now as we hear president biden once again talking about bidenomics yes which right. he certainly wants us to believe is change as he keeps talking about bottom up and middle out as a different approach to economics he's been selling this And he hasn't had entire success in terms of the numbers, that is to say the approval. Although when we look back at President Reagan, as you know, back in 1983, he had sort of a similar situation. But Carly, I wonder from your point of view, uh, you wrote this column on driving change and what's required and how you pick your spots. Uh, How important is it that people perceive that you're succeeding in the change, not just that you are succeeding? Well, it's a great question and great to be with you again, Joe and David. So first, let me say, whatever you think of Bidenomics, whatever you think of the program, in fairness, the president has actually only just begun talking about this. He hasn't spent a lot of time campaigning and he hasn't spent a lot of time explaining 
his program and his accomplishments to the American people. I start with that because one of the critical factors in successful change is communication over and over and over and over. And particularly, David, to your question, communication about what's working. What have we done and what's working? That has credibility if, at the same time, a leader will acknowledge, and by the way, here are the things we have left to do. But it's critically important that communication go on over and over and over consistently over time. Here's what we've done. Here's why. Here's how we know it's working. Here's what we have left to do. So presumably Biden's going to keep doing this from now until the election. And is that the wrong thing, Carly? Because I think you're also saying that change for the sake of change is also not leadership. So does he need, if to your point, he's just getting out there starting to beat the drum, he needs to stick with this for a while? Well, I think he does only because, again, whatever you think of the program, what the data says, what the polls say, is that consumers, voters, don't really understand what he's done. They're not really aware of what he's done. And in particular, they don't really connect it up to their own lives. And so the story that he has to tell is, number one, informational. Here's what I've done. And then number two, make the connection for people. Here's why it matters to you. Now, of course, if people don't see it in their lives, if the connection seems false, then over time it's probably not going to be very successful. But, for example, this big um, rebuilding project in Philadelphia after 95 collapse, the fact that that got done so quickly, Hmm. I think he is touting that as part of his infrastructure bill. That's an example people can see. And he needs as many examples like that that are very tangible as he can get. Boy, Joe, that really sounds right to me that you have to actually see tangible results in your life. But I wonder, Joe, from your point of view in Washington, does he have the time to get that done? Uh, Because he has this Chips and Science Act. There are going to be a lot of construction of new fabs and things like that. But how long is it going to be before people really see that, Joe? Well, it's a great point because it's, you know, it's 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 framed as a generational investment, which is wonderful for the country if that's true. But not great if you're uh, running for reelection a year from now. Uh, because, yes, there there seems to be this effort to continue reminding people of what's been done. And, you, you know, as you remember, David, uh, during Obamacare, Barack Obama coming out of that was a that was a brutal debate. And, and it made it very difficult for him to get anything else done uh, on Capitol Hill in that term. And he said, you know, my one regret was we, we didn't do the salesmanship part. We didn't travel the country to remind everybody what we had done. Yeah, it's a really good point about Obamacare because they just needed to wait longer. And I wonder, Carly, how long can you wait as a leader to really see the results before it starts to take hold? Because when you announce change, it doesn't happen overnight. No, that's right. But that is why you must prepare people through appropriate metrics, through relying on your uh, allies to carry the message for for you. You must be able to show progress. Not completion, but progress. And it's why, in many ways, successful change requires starting with the easy things, not the hard things, so that people can start to see results more quickly. Mm -hmm. I will say this, gentlemen. I do think that all the data also says that Americans are tired of the polarization. If I were Biden or advising Biden, I would spend a lot of time talking about the fact that the CHIPS Act 
the Infrastructure Act, the uh, overcoming the debt ceiling impasse, that all of these were bipartisan accomplishments, that every single one of these things had support across the aisle. Because I actually think it's one of the strongest selling points he has, and I think Americans appreciate that. They may not be primary voters, <laughs> which, as we know, are more polarized voters generally, but they certainly are general election voters. Which brings me to this great sentence. It's so, it's so efficient, Carly. Prioritization and sequencing matter. And yep. Carly goes exactly. on to write, if too much is attempted too soon, failures will inevitably occur. That's the keep it slow and steady pace we're seeing from this president right now. Yes, prioritization matters. It's why you start, as I just said, you start with the easy things, not the hard things, so that you can show progress, build confidence and trust uh, as you continue to move forward. Uh, It's why Obamacare, I think, became uh, a problem, because it was so big, so complicated, so huge, and it took a long time to pay off. Well, it just seems so simple when you write it. (laughs) Carrying it out in in action is a whole different thing. Carly, thanks as ever. Carly Fiorina and our friend David Weston. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You keep hearing AI is going to change the way politicians campaign. As soon as this cycle, right, generating new strategies to reach voters, just a matter of harnessing the technology. But Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is not waiting around. A super PAC supporting his Republican presidential campaign called SOS America is out with an AI chatbot to answer questions about the mayor. The bot introduces itself uh, in video form as Mayor Suarez. Hi, I'm AI Francis Suarez. You've probably heard that my namesake, conservative Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, is running for president. I'm here to answer questions you may have about Mayor Suarez's proven agenda for economic prosperity. So we thought we'd take it out for a drive. Ask the bot a couple questions. How do you beat Donald Trump? The rule of law and order has more than dissolved under Joe Biden's administration. Well, that's not. It has been turned on its head to serve the special interests of the Bidens and other D.C. politicians. Asked about Trump. I want to ask Mayor Suarez. Happy to see you again. How can I help? Hi. Uh, When are you coming on for an interview? Conservative Miami Mayor Francis Suarez's leadership Mm. has transformed Miami into a city that's thriving economically. Uh, Hey, happy to see you again. How can I help? How much money did you raise in the last quarter? Conservative Miami Mayor Francis Suarez's leadership has transformed Miami into a city that's thriving economically. (laughs) That's not an answer. Hey, happy to see you again. How can I help? Will you be at the debate in August? The rule of law and order has more than dissolved under Joe Biden's administration. (laughs) No, no, no. It has been turned on its head to serve the special interests of the the Bidens and other DCs. Hey, happy to see you again. How can I help? Oh, hi. Will you vow to support the Republican nominee in 2024? The rule of law and order has more than dissolved under Joe Biden's administration. <laughs> but that's not the question. It has been turned on its head. Hang on. To serve hey, happy spe- to see you again. How Hi. can I help? Well, is Miami still the crypto capital? Listen, they don't call conservative Miami Mayor Francis Suarez the Bitcoin mayor just for the heck of it. Okay. Mayor Suarez has been a staunch advocate for <laughs> cryptocurrency for a while that. now, yeah. even accepting his salary in Bitcoin. All right. He did. Mayor Suarez led Miami to become the nation's leading innovative I and growing. I just want to know, is he, t- is he still getting the Bitcoin? I, I, I need more time with the bot. 
Don't worry. Pretty soon it'll be me speaking as a chatbot. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.